Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Has anyone ever said these words before? What's taking him so long? Or perhaps, what's taking her so long? Equal opportunity. Anyone ever said those words? Some of you are nudging the people that you're with. That's a little telling. I, uh, some of you know this, so I'm the oldest of seven kids. So getting all nine of us together ready for a family road trip was a, uh, a real feat. A real mirror. It was like that opening scene in Home Alone. You guys remember that? I'm dating myself. Remember the, just the chaos of all these, everyone screaming and Fuller's drinking like an eighth can of Pepsi or whatever. And uh, that's how it was in my family. So whenever we would like plan road trips or vacations, it was just chaos. And uh, we had a 15 passenger van. That's the car I learned to drive on, actually, because that was what my family required. And uh, we would find, it was amazing. Every single time, uh, we'd finally get everyone strapped into this massive, it was a shuttle bus for all intents and purposes. And we'd all be in the van, car running, and my father was nowhere to be seen. Every time. And my mom would say those very familiar words, what is taking him so long? We discovered, actually, for whatever reason, that time after time, whenever we were getting ready to go on vacation, once everything was loaded up and everyone was buckled in, my dad always found that to be the time to either floss his teeth or clip his nails. Every time. For some reason, that was like a mental hurdle for him, and we were all ready to go, and yet we were stuck waiting on my dad asking, what is taking him so long? Have you ever looked around at our world and thought of Jesus, what is taking him so long? Have you ever looked at the chaos of our life, the world, our world, and thought, what is taking him so long? Is he going to come back and set this all? Anyone feeling some of that, particularly in the last month or so? What, what is taking him so long? Polls conducted in 2012 across 20 countries found that over 14% of people believe the world will end in their lifetime, with percentages ranging from 6% of the people in France to 22% in the U.S. and Turkey. In fact, Pew Research in 2022 found that 39% of Americans believed we were living in the end times right now. Now, throughout the course of history, there have been more than 280 predictions of the end of the world. Here's the first one. The Jewish sect of ascetics saw the Jewish uprising against the Romans in 66 to 70 AD in Judea as the final end times battle, which would bring about the arrival of the Messiah. By the authority of Simon, coins were actually minted declaring the redemption of Israel. That's the first one, but you may not know this. Martin Luther predicted the end of the world would occur no later than 1600. John Wesley foresaw the millennium beginning in 1836. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, predicted the generations of 1948 would be the last generation that the world would end by 1981, I'm assuming because of 80s music. (laughs) It's not even in the notes, that's a freebie. Jerry Falwell predicted, along with many others, that God would be making his final judgment on the world in the the year 2000. You guys remember 2000? That was a fun time. And then Harold Camping, some, a name that you may not know, made several predictions, too many to count over the decades, amassing hundreds of millions of dollars in the process. My point is, we have been wondering what is taking so long for quite some time. 
And many people throughout the course of history have been convinced now is the time. It is, it is finally happening. The, the end is near. Perhaps you have pictures of picket signs or people on street corners with bullhorns or perhaps even just quietly in your heart. Surely, God, this, this must be the end. Well, here in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he's actually going to address that. And I think that's a very timely word for all of us. So quickly, a brief overview. In chapter 1, uh, Peter challenges believers to never stop growing. That's a challenging word in and of itself. He uses the phrase, make every effort. You, you should never grow stagnant as a believer. And I, I use the phrase that a mentor used with me. I want to die with my boots on. We don't retire from the Christian life. Well, I've done enough and I've memorized enough verses and I've gone to enough church services and Bible studies and whatever. We, we die with our boots on. He's saying, don't become stagnant. Then in chapter two and three, he pivots. And we talked about this last week and this was a weird crowd favor. We talked about false teachers. Not only what what they do, but how to spot them and what we're supposed to do. In Jesus' words, his instruction to us is simply to watch out. Watch out for false teachers. But not only false teachers, though, he talks about those denying Jesus' return. And last week, their combined skepticism of Jesus' return with their love of sin without consequences was all too convenient for Peter. They could reject biblical authority, get rich quickly by teaching false messages, and have lots of casual sex all without the fear of accountability or judgment. This is a classic, have your cake and eat it too, and Peter was not having any of it. And he kind of goes full tilt. Chapter two, kind of one and three are sort of love sandwich with chapter two being fairly intense. He condemns their actions outright in chapter two, and he reminds them and us that judgment is coming. Now, to make his case, he follows what I would argue is a rabbinic formula of proof, which moves from minor to major premise. It goes like this. If A is true, how much more true is B? Using that formula, he pulls from events, notorious events in biblical history. If you remember the examples of the angels and Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, he's saying, listen, if God knows how to take care of the wicked, then he can also handle it now. Take heart. He knows what he's doing. But he also says then of this particular first century audience that their knowledge of the gospel will actually make them more culpable on the day of judgment. He says the problem isn't simply the wickedness, but the fact that you know better and still continue to live lives this way is problematic. But Peter doesn't stop there. Yes, he says false teachers need to be silenced, but young churches also need to be shepherded through the delay. They were living through the first wave of organized persecution against Christians during the reign of Nero. If you know anything about Nero, not a fan of Christians, to say the least. The question would have been on all of their minds, why would Jesus delay when such palpable evil was ruling? Anyone ever had that thought? Why in the world would Jesus delay with all of the evil in the world, all of the chaos. This is a very real felt question and it is not limited to first century believers. Just look at the world around us. Do I have to convince anyone that evil is rampant? There is violence and war and mass shootings and terror. There is brokenness and pain and suffering. And in many cases, the innocent are oppressed while the wicked seem to prosper. We cannot help but wrestle with the same question. What is taking Jesus so long? 2 Peter 3 actually contains, I would argue, the most explicit treatment of the delay of the second coming of Jesus in the entire New Testament. So it's particularly important if you're trying to make sense of this weight. So, as we mentioned in week one, Peter, knowing that he's nearing the end of his life, doesn't pull any punches. And I've sort of like, 
this is, hopefully this doesn't actually go online, but this is the title I'm giving this sermon. Y'all, I'm dying, so Peter knows that the end is near for him in particular. And history tells us that he was not only crucified, but that he was crucified upside down, stating that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Messiah. Y'all, I am dying. He knows the end is near for him, so he doesn't pull any punches. This last week as I was studying, I was thinking about being Peter, writing this letter, knowing that you are days away from sacrificing your life. There's understandably no hesitancy. No, it's focused, it's matter of fact, and it focuses on Jesus. That's how I wanna go out, by the way. <laughs> With the praise of God on my lips. Strokes aside, Peter actually ends this letter quite strongly. And he begins in verse one. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you, or your translation may read, stir you up to wholesome thinking. Now some translations read uh, wholesome thinking as accurate thinking. I would argue it's simply seeing the world as it actually is. And we'll talk about more about that in a second. Wholesome thinking isn't just like, think about Mr. Rogers as often as possible. Little House on the Prairie and Salty the Songbook. Anyone know Salty? I'm dating myself again. <laughs> It's not just like, oh, thinking about nice things. It's seeing the world as it actually is. Now, notice something really important here, and this is easy to miss. Notice that he calls them friends. Your translation may read beloved. I heard a pastor years ago. He says, a good rule of thumb is connect before you correct. Some of us are way too comfortable like lobbing grenades and arrows from the distance or from the safety of a screen. He, he refers to them as friends, as beloved. There, there is like an intimacy there that is evident throughout his letters. Connect before you correct. Does anyone else find it easier to listen to someone if you know they're actually for you? Conversely, anyone have a hard time listening to someone that you know is just out to pummel you or knock you down a couple of rungs? Connect before you correct. This is what Jesus did with the incarnation. But about this idea of wholesome thinking, many of us go through life with misconceptions about the world that we live in. This is why Peter challenges us to a pattern of wholesome thinking, of accurate thinking, to learn rightly about the world. So today we're gonna to look at a few different ways to do that. Uh, number one is this, be shaped by God's word. These statements, by the way, are not gonna be really clever. I'm just gonna kinda of go for it. This is a little over the plate. Be shaped by God's word. Verse two, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. If you remember in, verse, in chapter one, he talks about the importance of being reminded. We're forgetful people. This is part of why like regular church attendance and small groups and being in God's word is so important because I know I'm not alone in this. Anyone struggle with sort of like a, a case of spiritual amnesia? Anyone find yourself like learning or relearning truths? You're like, I already knew that. And yet sometimes life just kind of pummels that out. We're so plagued at times by spiritual amnesia that Peter actually recognizes, listen, you're gonna, you're gonna forget. Let me remind you. Now the holy prophets is referring to the writers of the Hebrew scriptures and then the apostles simply means sent ones. Peter does something really fascinating here. He's upholding the New Testament, the writing of the apostles as scripture. He, he recognizes that even like what he's a part of some, in some mysterious way is more than just simply like a correspondence. This is a bold claim. He places the messengers of the new covenant on the same plane as the old. And also notice this, easy to miss. Apostles is plural, through your apostles. It's a community of apostles of which Peter was 
1. Essentially, if you want to develop right thinking, accurate thinking, let the word of God shape your thinking. You all have heard me say this far too many times. Some of us are like reading the Bible through the lens of America, and we need to read America through the lens of the Bible. Like some, some of us are like being immersed in culture and media and like, you know, dabbling in scripture now and again, and I would argue it's time for a reversal. We need to not just simply read and study and memorize as good as all those things are. We need to be shaped by. <coughs> Look at the life that Jesus taught us to live. Live the way the apostles teach us to live. And some of you might be thinking, okay, what's the Bible plan that I should do or shouldn't do or what's like a good course of action? I would simply say this. The best Bible plan is the one you actually do. Okay, I'm not not here to say like this is the right or wrong way to do it. I think I have suggestions. In fact, you can go to bridge.tv slash abide. We've put one together for you. And uh, I would highly recommend you can hop in anytime. Like that's, that's for us as a community. Uh, to walk us through the entire written word of scripture. But the best plan is the one you actually do. That might be the only thing you need to actually hear from me today. (coughs) Excuse me. But the world teaches that it doesn't actually matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. But the word teaches that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is salvation in none but him. The world teaches that truth changes from culture to culture and generation to generation. The word teaches that the truth transcends time and place and is determined by God, not by popular opinion. In other areas, the world teaches don't get mad, get even. The word teaches to forgive your enemies and do good to those who harm you. The world teaches look out for number one. The word, (coughs) excuse me, the word teaches us to look out for those who can't look out for themselves. Well, I don't think I've had to do this once yet. I'm just so emotional that the ADM is ending. The word of God teaches us how to view the world, how to understand the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, truth and error. It teaches us how to become accurate thinkers. Therefore, Peter says, remember the words of the prophets and the teachings of Jesus. And again, remember, he's writing this near the end of his life. In fact, at the time of writing this, many of the apostles were starting to die off. Christians were wondering what happened to the promise that Jesus was coming back. It was painfully obvious to them that Jesus had been gone for 30 years. What was going on? In fact, some were starting to say, you know what's going on? Nothing. Nothing's happening and nothing is going to happen. Which brings me to number two. Be skeptical of the skeptics. Be skeptical of the skeptics. Verse three. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, just to be really clear, uh, I think we are in the last days, but I think we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended into heaven. That, that is the inauguration of a kingdom come that is the already not yet kingdom. That we have moments where it breaks through, we get glimpses of his kingdom. It's the already not yet. Now, first, uh, you have that God brings written revelation, but against his written revelation comes what? Scoffers. And this is not a surprise to most of us, right? We probably don't have to think too hard about where these scoffers might be. Mocking is always seen in scripture as a characteristic opposite of the righteous and the wise. Psalm 1-1, for example. Peter says we must understand this. Scoffers are going to come. Some of us in our Christian walk, like we, we, we have this innate people pleaser, myself included, that we never want anyone to disagree with anything we do or say or believe or hold. Peter says you, you should be prepared for scoffing. 
You should be prepared for people to turn their nose at you and say, really, that's how you spend your time? That's how you spend your money? That's how you're going to treat that person that wronged you? That's the way you're going to live? Scoffers are going to come. Do our students and kids and young adults know that? Sometimes the first time that they're confronted by people who disagree with them or even scoff, they're shocked and they're not prepared. We tend to believe skeptics, cynics, and critics. You ever notice that? Like when it comes to um, someone leaving reviews or pundits or whatever, like it's, I feel like skepticism is almost seen as like a virtue. And it sort of masks right as like, well, that person, that, must, that person must be wise because look at how much they disagree with everything. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And Peter says, be mindful of that. The person that always has something to tear down, always has something to demolish, that's always looking for a reason to dismantle. Skeptical does not equal smart. Sometimes it can, but they are not the same. Sometimes, like, I think skepticism is the, a desire to not want to, like, bandwagon or not want to be seen as a lemming, which I think is fine. But note this, the scoffers don't merely have an intellectual issue. They have a moral one. He says, following their own evil desires. It's not just an intellectual issue. It's a moral one. And what do they say? Verse four, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as as it has since the beginning of creation. They're saying essentially, where is he? Where's this coming that you've been talking about? Peter's argument to the mockers is that they are fools for thinking that Jesus isn't going to return to intervene in creation. They overlooked the fact that God had already actively intervened in creation. He is consistent. He's already judged the earth once before. Just because it isn't happening to our sensibilities doesn't mean it isn't happening. The example that I thought of is um, uh, years ago, I, I rented a car in a state that has an I-pass. Illinois was one of them, by the way. Y'all don't know how good we have it to have just roads we can drive on. Full stop. But I remember like renting a car and I forgot to bring my iPass with me to the car. So I was driving to and from a, a conference center. And the first time I like drove past one of the overpass, I like panicked. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have my iPass. And then I had this thought, which was based on nothing. I was like, oh, I'm sure that's included in my plan. Right? Like if I'm paying for the rental, I'm sure that like the license plate is like, hey, I'm sure it's in the database. So I like drove through it. Nothing happened. So I drove back. Nothing happened. I did this for three days, by the way. And I was like, boy, so nice of Hertz to just include this in the policy, right? I thought I got away scot-free. Everything is good. Nothing is happening, therefore nothing will happen. Anyone want to guess what happened about four weeks later? Did you know it's not just simply the cost of the toll, but a penalty for each time that that was violated? And it had like a gif of someone shaking his finger at me. It was very shame-based. It was very rude. It was very... Just because something isn't happening doesn't mean something isn't going to happen. And so many of the scoffers are going, where is he? Nothing seems to be happening. I guess I'll continue to live as I always have. And Peter says, watch out. This is how he responds in verse five. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word that present uh, present heavens and earth as reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, Peter actually uses a really interesting phrase here in verse five. He says they deliberately forget that some things are true. They deliberately ignore 
that still small voice that is calling them to a personal relationship with God. They deliberately resist his voice. To develop right thinking, accurate thinking, we need to learn, and please hear my heart in this, we need to learn how to not take scoffers too seriously. That's not to say that like skeptics and doubters, and listen, if you're here and you're like, man, I'm not sure how I feel about this whole Jesus Bible church thing, I I am so glad that you are here. I hope that you find this to be a safe place to wrestle with doubt. In fact, our next series is all about doubt. How How do we wrestle well with doubt? But we need to learn, though, to discern God's voice more loudly than any scoffer. The voice of our shepherd, the voice of our savior needs to be the clearest, loudest voice that we hear. That Peter then moves to what I would argue is this central argument in how to understand this delay of Jesus. I want to read the whole section and then we're going to kind of walk through it a little bit. Uh, Verse eight, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, there's that intimacy again. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, at this point, we need to pause because there are different schools of thought on how to understand Peter's logic, particularly in verse 8. So this is going to feel like a deep dive for a brief second, and I, I wish this honestly should have been two sermons, but we're going to make it happen in one. Sound good? You ready? Buckle up. Turn to a neighbor and say, I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. We should read these verses according to their genre. And Corey did a a fantastic job a couple weeks ago talking about the different literary genres. This genre is what we call apocalyptic eschatology. Let me hear you say apocalyptic eschatology. (laughs) I don't have good hearing and I already know some of you failed at that. That is, apocalyptic eschatology is appreciating that Peter is a Jewish Christian who has been shaped by apocalyptic visionaries throughout the centuries. Now something I have to say, when when we think of apocalypse, how many of us picture like the end of the world? You picture like, uh, I don't know, fire and, and dragons and a Nickelback reunion tour and like just, that's like the worst thing you could have, right? Again, not in the notes, that's just a freebie. Apocalypse simply means to uncover or reveal. It's when you suddenly see the true nature of something you couldn't see before. Kind of like accurate thinking. Apocalypse is not this like, this like horrible like movie that we have imagined from our childhood about dragons and fire. It's an uncovering. It's something being revealed. It's things that we don't see but now see. We often don't see things, Christians included, for the way they really are. This is how Peter is writing. It's a revelation. That sound familiar? It's a heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. Peter would have been intimately familiar with writers such as Habakkuk or Daniel, men who knew what it was to cry out in anguish, how long, O Lord, while maintaining trust in God's sovereign purposes. He would have learned from their fierce faith in the face of evil to trust that God's timetable was not his own. To help us see how Peter, when confronted with the delay of Jesus' return, he doesn't just throw together an argument to calm everyone down. He enters into a long line of apocalyptic tradition saturated with eschatological delay to form arguments that were already familiar in his readers' minds. Through this technique, he's able to help them and us understand this delay and why it holds great meaning. First point, God's timeline is not ours. God's timeline is not ours. Again, in verse eight, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Can I be honest? This one is really hard to grasp when I look at all the evil in the world. Like I've heard this verse literally since I was seven years old. 
And when I look at just all the pain, even just in our area, in our community, in our families and marriages, yet apocalyptic writers were quick to point out that God operates on a different clock than we do. His perception of time, it frees him from the categories and confines that we live by. Our human expectation of the situation as we see it is bound by our own brief existence and our desire to experience redemption. We're impatient to see our broken lives and our broken world restored. So we cry out with the martyrs of Revelation 6, how long, oh God? How much longer? Peter reminds us that the eternal God is free from that particular impatience. He's not bound by a desire for personal redemption or limited by human perspective. Thus, what seems long to us might not be as significant when viewed from the perspective of eternity. Number two, God is patient. God is patient. Verse nine again. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter gives his second argument taken from Jewish apocalyptic writing. God Delays, not because he's slow, but because he is patient towards sinners, giving everyone a chance for repentance. We actually see this in God's description of himself. In Exodus chapter 34, it is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. That is worthy of our attention. Exodus chapter 34, which reads, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is as true as ever when it comes to this delay. Though we may long, and my sense is that many of us do, we long for Jesus' return and the defeat of evil. God has allowed these days to continue so that more and more will trust in him. He's not slow. There's a big difference between slow and patient. The delay isn't a hiccup in the plan. It's a part of the plan. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, but as long as this delay is here, there's time for more people to repent and trust in Jesus, and we should thank God for that. This truth should actually fuel our patience and passion as we await the Lord's return. Slowness is not because God doesn't intervene. It's not because he's forgotten. It's because he is actively intervening through the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason God has not yet returned is because there is someone who still needs to confess and believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Today, by the way, is that day for some of you. You're wondering, why am I even at church today? Why am I tuning in online? Why am I in Columbia? What am I doing in this jail? Maybe you're wondering, what is the point of all of this? And today is the day for you to confess and believe and surrender into the lordship of the resurrected Jesus Christ. The promise that Peter refers to is this second coming. He's saying God isn't slow, he's patient. And he's patient because he knows there are still those who will Surrender. Have you ever wondered how many people are converting to Christianity every day? Uh, one study found that in Africa alone, Christians increase at the rate of 16,173 per day. In Africa alone. On this one cotton, every day that Jesus waits changes the eternal destiny of more than 16,000 people. Every hour changes the destiny of 673. Every minute makes a difference for 28 Africans. Every single day is a gift of mercy, not just for them, but for all of us. God has given us one more day so that we might have one more chance to repent and come to him and to bring it to our world. That's what we mean by for the sake of the world, to bring the good news of the gospel to my neighbor that I run from, from that family member that I have a really hard time, that guy in the cubicle next to me that stomps on my last nerve. He delays so that we have one more chance to bring the good news, the light of the gospel to them. Think about it. We have today. 
Praise be to God. We have this moment. We can do something for God. Some of you might say, but I've wasted a lifetime. I've wasted every good opportunity. And that may be true, but you still have today. You have this moment. Right now, you can do something by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Keep this in mind. Since God is patient with the human race, we need to also be. Some of us are like really annoyed that God is taking so long. Aren't we glad that he was patient with us in the first place? That it, it wasn't a one strike, you're out kind of game. Isn't that good news? Some of us, that, that moment was so long ago that it's hard for us to really appreciate in the here and now, man, I, I, can, I can understand and maybe even be grateful for God's patience with others because I know that the only reason that I'm here is because he was patient with me. That's the, the goodness and the kindness of God to be patient to sinners. He keeps extending the calendar one more day to give everyone one more chance. Let's do the same. No matter how lost or hopeless you think someone else is, extend the, cal- the calendar of mercy one more day. No matter how many times someone has disappointed you in the past, keep the door open one more day. Every day that you're alive is a gift of mercy from God to you. Share that gift with others. So what are we, what are we supposed to do then right here and now? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live, what's it say? Holy and godly lives. Consecrated, set apart. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. By living holy, godly lives, we speed its coming. Not by beating people over the head with the Bible and screaming online about how right we are and how wrong everyone else is. By living holy and godly lives, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So how are we to live right now? In a word, with patience and purpose. Patience and purpose. Peter says we are to be characterized by holiness and godliness. This text also suggests that Christians living actually has an effect on God's timetable. We can, as some translations read, hasten the day as we live out the new covenant realities. As followers of Jesus who believe that the kingdom has broken into the present through the work of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we don't wait idly by for him to return. We don't bury ourselves in a bunker, fingers crossed, hoping that everything will get better. Rather, like Peter, we live as new, transformed humans who take advantage of the divine delay so that every single person at least in our world, in our context, could know the love of the Father. So yes, we wait, but we wait patiently. This fire and melting imagery is a metaphor for the process in which God separates good from evil. This is how Peter uses fire imagery in his first letter, reminding his readers that like gold, they too will be tested through fire. And those who make it through the fire will be praised and honored by God. These passages do not stress that the heavens and earth will be literally annihilated, but that all evil will be utterly consumed. Peter describes the world in terms of transformation and testing. Douglas Moo points out that the word Peter used for dissolved in 2 Peter does not connote annihilation, but instead speaks to radical transformation. He suggests that an alternate, alternate translation might be undone, that in Jesus, all evil, all shame, all heartache, all violence, all darkness is undone. It's undone. And in verse 13, he says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
We are looking forward, not caught in the mark and mire of our day-to-day activities or the things that weigh us down or whatever thing that we're struggling to carry. So in light of that, he says, verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, what to say? Make every effort. This is not sort of some passive, like, I'll just let go and let God and fingers crossed. I hope he comes soon. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. He's talking about holy lives, godly lives, peaceful lives, pure and blameless. That's what shows you we're living a life of repentance. And my guess is we know when we are living like that and when we're not. Somewhere deep down, I think, I think we know. Have you heard somebody, you know it, but you just can't bring yourself to apologize, to look them in the eyes and say, I was wrong. Have you had this growing realization that you carry a lot of anger in your heart and it just keeps pushing people away? Confess, friends. We do not know the day or the hour. Confess. Surrender. And then Peter ends the whole letter like this, verse 17. So good. Therefore, dear friends, dear beloved, my brothers and sisters, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But what? Grow in the grace and knowledge, intimate knowledge, intimacy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. For some, the idea of God's assured return, <clears throat> it puts us in a state of kind of cruise control. He's definitely coming back, so I guess I'll sort of cruise. But that's not Peter's framework, or any writer of the New Testament, by the way. Assurance leads to action. Assurance leads to action. He is who he says he is. He is coming back, so right here and now, Assurance that God will return is caused to act now so that others will see his goodness and trust him. Assurance that God will return is caused to work hard, knowing that what reflects God's glory here and now will somehow extend into eternity. Assurance that God will return keeps our eyes on the prize so that we know that the time we have here is limited. So let's get to work, church. In fact, what I love here is Peter actually makes the end of his letter mirroring the beginning. In in chapter one, he talks about being diligent or making every effort, growing in knowledge. Here's the amazing part about this parallel, and then I'll I'll end. At the end of Peter's letter, it is both an encouragement and a command to action, but don't miss this. The passages that he parallels with are about God's action and resourcing on our behalf. Peter wants to remind his readers both then and now that what we've been called to do has been completely supplied in Jesus already. What we have been called to do, the darkness that we are to push back, the kingdom that we are to bring from heaven to earth has been supplied in Jesus already. He doesn't say, go out there and just try harder in your own strength. He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, all authority is already mine and I'm giving it to you. I'm sending you to make my name great, to extend the calendar one more day so that those far from God might know it. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. 
We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at Bridge Church TN. Thanks again for listening.